Hey, well, good morning, church. So good to be with you guys this morning. Those of you watching online, good to have you on as well. Um, You know, I remember as a child growing up that each Sunday morning before we headed off to church, my parents ensured that me and my siblings, we were all wearing our Sunday best. The worn-out sneakers stayed piled in the corner of the closet. The uh, stained T-shirt and, you know, the holy jeans, well, they were reserved for after church. Though we didn't always have the newest or the nicest clothes on Sunday mornings, you could count on us wearing our Sunday best. Now in my home church where I grew up, the, pre- the preacher, he always dressed up, suit and tie, right? Volunteers as well. In fact, you know, in my church growing up, it, when you were a young man, you got old enough to help, you know, pass out the communion trays back when we did that sort of thing and collect the offering, you know, before it was all in boxes on the walls, right? You were expected to wear a tie and possibly even a suit jacket if you were going to touch those trays. And that wasn't just where I grew up in central Illinois, but in southern Illinois, my, my dad's family, they were all country folk. And, you know, I remember going and visiting my grandparents at their farm and then going to their small country church, you know, on a Sunday morning. And, you know, all of a sudden this transformation took place. No longer were these, you know, rugged guys in bib overalls and T-shirts. These were church men now in their suits and their ties. Now, perhaps this lean in the church toward formality was simply a pushback against the hippie culture of the 1960s into which I was born, you know, where open-toed sandals and bell-bottom faded jeans and, you know, patches, and that was just kind of the norm. But I wonder maybe if it wasn't that, but it was simply a continuation of a long-held idea that when coming to church, that one should always put on their Sunday best. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical of those who dress nicely, of those who choose to wear a suit and tie, nor am I acting as as an advocate for holy jeans and and flip-flops and motorcycle shirts, right? I'm really not trying to say anything or point out anything specific about clothing at all. Wear what you want, for crying out loud. You're not going to please everyone anyway. Why, just last Sunday, it was chilly, so I grabbed a light jacket before I came to church, and I put it on, and I left it on throughout the entire morning at the worship service over my V-neck shirt, right? Now, in addition, I didn't wear my usual blue jeans. I wore some gray-colored jeans, right? I wasn't trying to make a fashion statement by any stretch of the imagination, but by the comments I heard, you would have thought that I had shown up to church wearing a tuxedo, You see, when it comes to putting on our Sunday best, I'm not concerned about the appearance of our clothing. No, what I'm really concerned about is when Christians are clothing themselves with the appearance of perfection. See, the type of perfection that I'm concerned about is the one that individuals portray on their social media. It's the kind of perfection that is communicated in conversations with family and friends. It's the kind of perfection which gets paraded in front of an all-knowing, holy God by people who are simply putting on their Sunday best, hoping that will effectively cover their internal mess. This morning, we're smack dab in the middle of our teaching series titled Bad Religion. And in this series, Josh has started the conversation with idea that throughout history, God's people have gotten in their own way. 
throughout history, they have given religion a bad name. They have given faith a bad name. Christians, well, they have by their actions allowed their behavior to negatively impact the faith of others. And they've done so by living out lives of hypocrisy. Now, for some of us listening, we might have just sat back in our seats and and breathed a sigh of relief, right? Uh, We might have just tightened up a a notch on our belt of smugness. We might have just added a tick mark onto our score of self-righteousness. Some may have physically leaned forward in their seat with that go get them expectancy as the preacher is about to call out all those hypocrites in the church. The reality is, when it comes to hypocrisy in the church, to quote from a comic strip by Walt Kelly, we have met the enemy and he is us. And when it comes to my life, When it comes to Virgil Brazel, I will take responsibility for me. When it comes to hypocrisy, I have met the enemy. And I confess that far more times than I want to admit, the enemy is me. When it comes to hypocrisy, the enemy is me. Let's pray. God, we come to you today uh, in your presence with your people uh, to hear your word Jesus, we want to listen to what you had to say um, from the scripture today. Holy Spirit, we want to allow you to convict us, to change us, um, to to step on our toes if need be, um, but mostly to adjust our hearts, to adjust our thinking, and to adjust the way that we live and adjust the way that we love Jesus. Help us to be open to what you have to say to us today. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, the very word hypocrite comes from the Greek word hypocrites, right? Which means an actor or a stage player, one who literally puts on a mask, speaking from behind a mask, right? And eventually the word evolved to refer to any person who figuratively figuratively was wearing a mask, right? Pretending to be someone or something that they really weren't. My guess is that nobody wants to be a hypocrite. And nobody wakes up one morning and said, today, I live in hypocrisy. Right? We just don't do that. None of us in the church ever imagined that when we gave our lives to Jesus, that we would ever possibly portray ourselves and our lives to be something that we simply are not. No one wants to become what God hates, and God hates hypocrisy. You see, God chooses to love us just where we are, and though by the power of his spirit within us, he's recreating us to become more and more like Jesus, he still hates it when we go through the motions of faith, right? Pretending to bring him our best while really we are bringing him our leftovers. He hates it when we profess one thing with our lips, claiming his name, but we live differently than what he commands. And he hates it when we claim him as our God, Yet we are disinterested in what he is trying to do and bring to the world. In our first week of our teaching series, we saw how apathy and inauthenticity caused God's chosen nation of Israel to lose sight of the purposes that he had for them. And inadvertently, they became enemies of God instead of co-laborers in his kingdom. 
and last week Josh shared how the uh, chosen people of God traded in his ways for the world's ways, how they exchanged what God had called them to live for, for ways that the culture called them to live, how they left God's truths for the lies of the world. And he said that years later, you and I, we are still finding ourselves in this battle for truth. But this week, as each and every one of us struggle with our own level of hypocrisy, I want to remind you, I want to encourage you, I want to urge you, don't let your faith become centered around the appearance of being perfect. But know that when we recognize and realize our failures and our imperfections, that we can allow Jesus to work in our lives in amazing ways. Today, we're going to take a look at the lives of some folks who should have been setting an example for us. Today, we're going to be looking at the lives of some of those who in Jesus' days should have been living out lives of sincerity. Those who should have been the most qualified to live out what they said and they believed, yet they seemed to simply be masters of putting on their Sunday best. Today, we're going to look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees. And the teachers of the law. In the book of Luke, um, it's in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book there. If you have your Bible, paper Bible, you're welcome to turn there. If you got your app, you're welcome to plug it in. Luke chapter 11, we're going to hang out there a bit today. In this chapter, we read that Jesus cast a demon out of a man and then was accused by the religious leaders of getting his power to do that from Satan himself. Later in this chapter, we read that the crowds were pressing in on him, wanting him to show them a miraculous sign. Not that casting a demon out of a man wasn't miraculous, but they wanted more. And so he used the account of Jonah and the great fish to tell them uh, that he would die and come back to life. See, just a typical day in the life of Jesus, right? He began a conversation where he encouraged his listeners to not just be a light for everyone to see, but to make certain that the light that was visible on their outside was a true reflection of the light that was within them. That it was genuine. That it was real. It was like Jesus was saying to them, don't be a hypocrite without ever even using that word. So we'll start reading in Luke eleven thirty seven. It says, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. I just want to stop there. Because sometimes we read about people in the Bible like, who are these guys? Pharisees were not known for being fans of Jesus. They were the religious leaders of the day, steeped deeply in the law of Moses, attempting in every way to fulfill all 600 plus of the laws that God had laid down in the wilderness as requirements in this old covenant or this old relationship between God and the nation of Israel. See, Jesus, though, had come to bring a new covenant. Jesus had come to bring a personal relationship with God, right? It wasn't built on keeping a bunch of laws, but it was based on what Jesus would do for them on the cross when he would pay the price for their sins. You see, his new covenant was based on a relationship, not on a rule. It was, it was, it was based on following after a person, not following after a system. But the religious leaders of the day, well, most of them, in fact, they couldn't accept it, and they couldn't accept him. 
So much so that they often accuse Jesus of being a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners, kind of their classification for the worst of the worst. And they made, that made him unacceptable. It made him unapproved in their sight. So much so that the fact that a Pharisee invited Jesus to his home for a meal, no less, well, that has the trappings of not only being countercultural, but seemed to stand in absolute opposition to all that the religious leaders held dear. Now, some have actually suggested that Jesus' invitation from the Pharisee to come to his house for dinner was less hospitality and less goodwill, and it was more an opportunity to silence him, to stop him, to interrupt him from what he is saying, because that moment he was calling out the religious inconsistencies of the people, especially the religious leaders. So Luke eleven thirty seven. 37, as Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So Jesus went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Uh, now let's not misunderstand. In the law of Moses, right, those laws that the Pharisees were trying to follow, there were some places and some ways that things that a person could do to become unclean. Right? Uh, you know, when they became unclean, sometimes there were sacrifices that needed to be made. Sometimes there were offerings that needed to be given. Sometimes when a person became unclean, it required a visit from the priest for an examination to make sure they were no longer unclean. Sometimes when people did things to make themselves unclean, there were some washings that were involved and necessary. But this wasn't one of those moments. This wasn't one of those times. This is simply a moment of religious custom. It was religious tradition. Which caused me to ask myself, and I wonder, how many times have well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians attempted to call you out or write you up because the way that you love or the way that you serve doesn't fit or fill the traditional mold that fits them? A young man walked into a church one Sunday morning. This isn't a preacher joke. This is a true story. But anyway, this one young man walks into church one Sunday morning, and those that didn't know this young man might, um, on first impression, assume that he was a thug. Uh, those of us that knew him and loved him anyway would still probably label him a thug, but that was not out of judgment, it was out of knowledge. <laughs> so in he walks, his pants sagging about mid-backside, or maybe lower, um, he's got his snapback cap on, but it's cocked all AC-doocy. An older member of the welcome team, and this didn't happen here, an older member of the welcome team approached me and said, will you take that, tell that young man to take his hat off? To which I replied, no. If I'm going to have a conversation with this young man in the lobby of our church, it's going to be about something important. You see, this young man would walk or ride his bike three miles to get to church almost every Sunday. He didn't come with his supportive family. He didn't get a ride from his friends. I hope he came because there were more people who loved him for who he was than judged him for who he was. See, my well-traditioned friend never really saw this young man. She simply saw her tradition. 
You know, if the Pharisee had invited Jesus to his home with the hopes of silencing him, he lost cause, man. Jesus had already stepped into calling out his hypocrisy. Either by his words or actions or reactions, this Pharisee had opened the door. So Jesus goes on. I'm sure he's bothered a bit, right? Because he just got called out on tradition like my young friend with his hat. Then the Lord said to him, uh, verse 39, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you'll be clean all over. I love that Jesus was the master of using the common, and the ordinary and the everyday things of life to bring about and drive home spiritual truth. I can just imagine Jesus reaching out and picking up a cup and kind of spinning it around in his hand and talking to the Pharisee and saying, you're like a cup. Now, honestly, we've probably all done that quick clean, you know, where we've like kind of hid the dirt where you're, you know, remember as a kid when you're supposed to clean your room and you shoved everything under the bed or in the closet, right? Pretending it was clean. All right, are you grown-ups? Maybe you've had that moment where someone comes knocking on the door, an unexpected visitor to your house, and you realize you got dirty dishes on the counter and in the sink, and you're shoving those suckers in the oven because the dishwasher's full of clean dishes and hasn't been unloaded yet. Yeah, I can tell by the laughter. You guys have done that, right? Hopefully, you have never actually gotten a clean cup from the cabinet and handed it to a guest, only discovered that there was hot chocolate residue still in the bottom. My wife and I were on a food tour, and it was one of those great, you know, go around town, learn some history, eat some different foods at a bunch of different restaurants. And, you know, we're at this one restaurant that was seemingly all clean by appearances, yet there was the unmistakable sound of a mousetrap going off somewhere in the dining area. Told us otherwise. You see, we've all had those times where we portray our lives to be, well, something perfect, uh, something put together, like we're in control, but we're not. We're looking good on the outside, right? Sunday best, but we're a total train wreck internally. You see, when it comes to our lives, we can hide the mousetraps. We can paint over the water stains. We can fill the cracks. We can make it all look Sunday best, knowing full well that it's just a mask, a pretend covering just for show. When it comes to following Jesus, our Sunday best is a poor imitation of the real life change that he wants to make in us. You see, what's real on the inside should be evident on the outside and along with it should come the grace that allows Jesus to make us more like him, to make us better. I'm guessing by this point the the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees were squirming a little bit, but Jesus went on. And it wasn't this polished outward appearance of masking the tarnished heart that bothered Jesus. It was more. He goes, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, verse 42, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. You see, giving back to God, friends, it's good. In fact, anything we do that recognizes God's value and his worth and importance in our life is good. Whatever we do to make his name famous is good. 
Whatever we can do to give him honor and glory is good. But picking and choosing only to honor God vertically without choosing to honor the mankind that he created, we're missing it. We've only got it part right. John, one of Jesus' closest followers, wrote uh, some letters that we read at the end of our New Testament. So in 1 John chapter 2, he writes these words. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. Rather, it is an old one you've had from the beginning. This old commandment, to love one another, what's the same message you've heard before? Yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing and the true light is already shining. Verse 9, if anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. You see, we cannot possibly love God and hate our brother. We can't say that we love others and then lay rules on them that even we can't follow. We can't say that we love our neighbor and then heap out judgment and racism and anger and unforgiveness on them. Once Jesus actually told his listeners that they were standing in line at the temple waiting to give their offering and they remembered that somebody had something against them that they were to leave their offering there and they were going to go and make it right. Sounds pretty scandalous though, right? But giving an offering to God is such a good religious thing to do. It is such a, well, Sunday best sort of thing to do. Can you imagine standing in line to give God your offering and realize I need to go and make some things right with God's creation, with his mankind? Well, what would other people think? Oh, the scandal of actually doing what Jesus himself would say are the more important things. Back to dinner. Jesus is not letting up. Have you ever invited someone to dinner at your house and you wish they'd leave? Well, this is what the Pharisees are feeling right now. What's kind of interesting about this whole passage, I never read that Jesus ever ate a bite of dinner. Right? I never see that in the passage. I don't know whether he did or not. But anyway, Luke 43, he says, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? For you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you? For you're like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption that they are stepping on. Listen, everybody likes to have nice things said about them. Even if you don't handle compliments, compliments well, even if they make you awkward or uncomfortable, you still like hearing them. Right? Everybody likes to be recognized for a job well done. Uh, last year, my son was chosen to be employee of the year at the company where he worked. Now, this is a hard-working kid, but he didn't work hard so he could get an award. He got an award because he worked hard with a good attitude. Right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to be recognized. But it's not okay to seek the glory for ourselves in place of giving God the glory that he deserves. And it's not okay when we look our Sunday best, but live another way, especially when it causes those who are watching to have their faith corrupted by our insincerity. In Matthew 20, Jesus having a conversation with his closest followers, his disciples, says this, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. 
But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's go back to dinner with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Verse 46. What sorrow also awaits you, experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. Verse 52, what sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. Same lobby, same church, not this one. The head of the security team tells me that a man has walked into our front doors smelling of alcohol and weed. My friend continues to tell me that he asked him to leave, to go home, to get cleaned up, and then to come back. I got to tell you, friends, my heart broke right there on the spot. And I believe that the heart of Jesus was broken as well. To my friend, I said, that man is exactly the type of person who we want to welcome through our front doors. And this was the absolute best place he could be. What have we used to shut the door of heaven in people's faces? Our prejudices, our, our, our pride, our politics, our that's just the way I am, abrasive personalities. Have they swung the door shut? What about our traditions, right? Our long-held opinions, our preconceived notions of how things should be because that's the way that we've always done them and I'm not willing to change my attitude about them. Has that kept people out? What about our aggressive driving with our Christian sticker on the bumper or our office gossip while we're holding our little uh, memory verse cup or our hate speech that's aimed at, directed at those whose sins are different than ours? Have that been something keeping people from coming to our church, coming to faith in Jesus? I wonder, are the things that you are living for and fighting for worth Christ dying for? Luke eleven forty five, teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. You know, when I read these words, I'm insulted too. Not because Jesus is wrong about them. Not because Jesus is wrong about me. I'm insulted by those words because Jesus is right. He's right about my hypocrisy. I wonder, is he right about yours? And if so, what do we do with it? What do we do when we're insulted by the words of Jesus, when those words of Jesus have called us out? Do we get bitter or do we allow those words to make us better? You see, the religious leaders, they got even more bitter, bitter to the point of putting Jesus on a cross. But you and me, because of the cross and our acceptance of what he has done for us there, we are giving him the opportunity to make us 
better. You see, because of the cross, we can have our confidence in him saving us. And because of the cross, we can have confidence that he's in the process of changing us. And because of the cross, we can also be confident in the midst of our imperfections, in the midst of our inadequacies, in the midst of our inabilities. And we know this because God has done it in the past and he is doing it right now and will continue to do it in the future, that we can be confident that he will use obedient, messed up, broken people like you and like me to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so the world can hear it. So friends, let's stop putting on our Sunday best. Instead, let's let Jesus walk with us, lead us, and carry us through our mess. And let's let him help us take off that mask. Let's pray. God, I stand before my friends and family today convicted by your words hopefully changed by your words. Help these not just be words that came out of my mouth and have no impact on my life. Help these not just be words that came into our ears and have no impact, but change us. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, who gave up everything out of love for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.